Sit beside the breakfast table Think about your troubles Pour yourself a cup of tea Then think about the bubbles You can take your teardrops And drop them in a teacup Take them down to the riverside And throw them over the side to be swept Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Ears on Dub Lab Radio. Today I'm joined by a Sea Shepherd captain and board member, Peter Hammerstead. Sea Shepherd is an international non-profit conservation organization that protects the oceans from illegal exploitation and environmental destruction. Founded by Captain Paul Watson in 1977, Sea Shepherd has since grown into a worldwide movement with operations in over 20 countries. Peter joined Sea Shepherd as soon as he was old enough to submit an application, age 18. And since then, Peter has sailed the seven seas from the Labrador coast to Antarctica and been recognized for his fearlessness in the face of illegal whaling, sealing and fishing practices. This includes saving 932 whales by standing up to an 8,000-ton factory whaling ship and captaining the world's longest sea chase, resulting in the Interpol-wanted vessel finally sinking. And there's so much more. So, Peter, it's wonderful to have you here today. I'm so glad you could join us. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) And why do you think I chose Think About Your Troubles as your opening track? Well, listening to the music, it felt a bit like the circle of life, but with a lot more science to it. And I liked the, I liked how this song equates the tear with the ocean. And, and what was always shocked me when I was a kid is that when you go to school, you learn all kinds of subjects under the sun. I'd never use algebra nowadays, for example, but you never learn ecology. And yet ecology and knowing our place within the natural world seems to be, that should be the most important thing we have to teach children, but we don't. And so I was thinking about that and maybe a bit depressing, but uh, the song just made me think of ocean acidification and all the different problems that we're faced with. Had you heard it before? I hadn't actually, no. Okay, so Harry Nielsen, The Point, that's one record for you. It's it's also an animated film. So he did the album, but then he did this wonderful animated version. Um, so actually the drawings of that sort of process that you hear are as magical as the music. Okay. No, <laughs> so I look forward to your, your feedback on that. I will watch it as soon as I get home. So we met um, actually fairly recently, and I'd come to see the screening of... Leslie Chilcott's new film, uh, Watson, which is about your founder, um, Captain Paul Watson, and didn't know that much about Sea Shepherd, didn't know that much about Paul. And I just felt myself kind of like, you know, seeing an inconvenient truth uh, the first time, but I felt myself leaving the screening both more inspired than I've been in a long time, but also more enraged Um, at the fact that we've got to where we are. Um, What did you think of that documentary? I think the film's fantastic. Captain Paul Watson was one of the co-founders of Greenpeace. He then founded Sea Shepherd. And what I really like about the film is it doesn't just provide a, a blueprint of what the problems are. It also gives real solutions. And through the Sea Shepherd model, that solution's always been found in direct action and directly confronting the problem at its heart. And so 
for me, I, I hope the story of Captain Paul Watson goes on to inspire other future Paul Watsons, people who uh, want to continue on the path that he started. Well, you're definitely one of those. I mean, watching that film, um, just some of those scenes where you're confronted with these seemingly impossible obstacles and um, your determination comes through in spades. Is that something you've always had? I think so. I think from an early age, I felt a strong kind of disgust for injustice. And I guess I've always believed that uh, when you know that something's wrong, when you finally have that knowledge, you also have an obligation to do something about the problem. And not doing something, being passive about it, is uh, complicity in that wrong. And it's that old saying that evil prevails only when good people stand by and do nothing. And when I was 14 years old, I saw a picture of a dead whale being pulled up the slipway of an 8,000-ton factory whaling ship. And that image haunted me. And I feel very fortunate that I got to spend my 20s directly confronting this monster of my childhood nightmares. And not only just confronting it, but actually partaking in actions that resulted in thousands of lives being saved down in the Antarctic, by which I mean thousands of whales that are swimming free in the Antarctic right now because a small group of passionate and compassionate people decided to intervene. Well, thank you for the work that you do. And we're going to get more into all of that um, as the show goes on. But first, I have to ask you, you know, the idea of this show, it's called Orange Juice for the Years. Um, it's taken from a quote by Oliver Sacks about the power of music and how deep it really goes. And the quote is, music can lift us out of depression or move us to tears. It is a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. And I just want to ask you, Peter, what does that quote mean to you? A dear friend of mine in Australia, his name's Philip Wollen, and he's an animal rights advocate. He's a philanthropist. He's a former vice president of Citibank who's done incredible things for animals. And whenever he speaks about compassion, he always brings up this story from Shakespeare's King Lear when King Lear asks the blind Earl of Gloucester how he's able to see the world. And he replies that he sees the world feelingly. And I guess that's what music allows us to do. It allows us to see the world feelingly. Um, it uh, teaches us about ourselves. And for me, music has been about politics. It's been about storytelling. It's been comfort for me for the times that I've been at sea. It's been a strong bond that I've shared with, with my father growing up because he really introduced me to music. But more than anything, it allows us to use other senses than just sight and hearing. It allows us to feel. With that in mind, what was the first song that imprinted on you? My father has a big vinyl collection. He was always into music. Uh, the first music that I really got submerged into, I suppose, was these cult counterculture icons like Pink Floyd and The Beatles, Bob Dylan, um, Simon and Garfunkel. But um, I got a, an education in music through him. And what I remember more than anything is Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, but more than that, Tom Petty when he went on to his solo career. And I remember the album Full Moon Fever. It's, I listened to it all of the time. And one song in particular, which seems very appropriate now, but it's I Won't Back Down. Perfect. Let's take a listen to I Won't Back Down by Tom Petty.
Hey, this is BT Wolf. You're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dub Lab. It is my great pleasure to have Sea Shepherd Captain Peter Hammerstead here today in the studio. Um, and that was Tom Petty. That was I Won't Back Down. And that was the first track that imprinted on you. Um, age? Very young. I'm thinking six, seven, even something like that. And that, and it was the whole album. It was the whole album, but this song in particular, I just love the line, "I know what's right." You just just have one life. I'm notorious for not remembering <laughs> lyrics very well. I don't think I can sing a single song without getting at least one word wrong. But, but I thought you only paid attention to lyrics. I do, but it's not necessarily per verbatim. Okay. I don't. It's not so literal. Um. And that was sort of via your dad's record collection. Sounds like he had a pretty good record collection. He's got a great record collection. Absolutely. He's always loved music. And uh, I I was just very grateful that that was something that he shared with me. It's funny because obviously I choose a track to introduce each guest. And literally the first thing that came to mind was that song. I was like, yeah, that's perfect for Peter. And then I saw your answers and I was like, oh, no. But almost by mental uh, osmosis, like I feel like that song, every time I've seen you in a scene, it's like that song is playing in the background, even though it's not just in terms of your your spirit. So maybe that's your theme tune or something. It's funny. (laughs) I listened to this song when I was 14 years old and around the same time that I saw this picture of this dead whale being pulled up the slipway. And then a few years ago, I was in this precarious situation where my crew and I were in a position to block this 8,000-ton factory whaling ship from refueling. And we essentially had to double park a 5,000-ton tanker in the Antarctic and then basically dare this factory whaling ship to refuel, saying you simply have to, if you're going to refuel, you have to basically sink us to do it. And it was a five-day confrontation that resulted in a number of collisions. Ultimately, we succeeded, but in the long nights, that separated those long days, I would often listen to that song to kind of get strength. And I think I was listening to the, Don Landes does a really great version of that song. And I was listening to that quite a bit. So it stayed with you over the years? It stayed with me for sure. It's been uh, a part of my activist toolkit. (laughs) Amazing. Everyone needs one of those. So you were born in Sweden. You can't tell from your accent, but um, you were born in Sweden. And Where in particular? I was born in a small town called Vesteros. It's uh, my father worked for a big power company, and that was kind of their base of operations. But we, I really grew up in the Middle East, and so my mother went back to Sweden just to give birth to me, and then she moved back down with me to Kuwait, where my father was working at the time. And then we lived in Saudi Arabia, we lived in China, the United Kingdom, and then ultimately, when I was about seven, eight years old, we ended up in the United States. Wow, so all your childhood you were moving pretty much. Yeah, very rootless existence probably prepared me for a life at sea. It's something that I'm grateful for now, but it meant always changing schools. It it meant, uh, but also it meant experiencing different cultures and it meant uh, that I had to be on my own quite a bit. And so for me, music was a friend. And what were you like as a kid? How would you spend your time? I think I was kind of a strange kid. I I was the second kid in my school to become a vegetarian. Now I've been vegan for for 17 years. Um, I listened to a lot of punk music when I was young. I think maybe the music that I listened to from these counterculture icons then went into punk music and other types of music. And for me, I was very 
maybe, maybe I saw the world quite black and white and I needed very clear definitions of right and wrong and good and evil. And so for me, I started looking into social justice issues at a very young age. And separate to music, my parents were always into reading. So um, when I was quite quite young, my, my sister and I would be taken to a bookstore once a month and we could always choose two or three books to take home with us to read for the month. And I remember one time my mother confined me at this big Barnes & Noble in New Jersey and ultimately she found me in the African American studies section and I was reading Huey P. Newton's Revolutionary Suicide and Alex Haley's oh The Autobiography of Malcolm X and I was probably about 13, 14 around then. Wow. Okay. So that explains everything. <laughs> <laughs> explains a little. I guess I was open to everything. And and maybe because of that music I listened to when I was quite young, I was open to the idea of questioning authority and, and not just taking truth as being this objective thing. Mm. And were you, do you feel like you were always conscious of the environment and nature from a young age? I think so. I was always really gentle with animals. I always knew that I loved animals. And that's why choosing not to eat animals became a natural progression for me. Um, when I realized that there wasn't really a difference between a, a dog that you call pet and a chicken you call dinner. And so, yeah, for sure. I think I was a compassionate kid. And probably some of that happened because I was moving around a lot. And I was in my own company a lot. Mm. And I was with my younger sister a lot. We had a very tight bond as well. And didn't you grow up? Near the ocean or by the ocean? I didn't really. I, I was an urban kid. Ah. So, I mean, I, I lived in Kuwait City, Riyadh, Beijing, London, and then moved to this small little town called New Hope outside of Philadelphia. So, uh, never really that close to the ocean. And uh, it was just seeing this image when I was 14 that really drew me to the sea. And it's just because whales happened to call the ocean home <laughs> <laughs> that I ended up there. But we weren't a family that spent our summers on the beach or anything okay. like that. So, Peter, what was the first album that really shaped who you are? So, I remember when we were moving a lot, my, my father once took me to a record store. He wanted me to have something in common with the other kids in school, something to talk about so I could make friends. And so, he took me to a record store and I could choose three albums. And I kind of went after what band patches kids had on their school bags. <laughs> so sweet. Um, the record store owner was surprised when I was asking about Nin, which was obviously the Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> but all I knew was this patch. I was looking for the band with the smiley face with a bullet through the head, and that was Nirvana. <laughs> so that was an album I took home, was Nirvana's MTV Unplugged. I took home the Smashing Pumpkins, Melancholy, and kind of off the... Nobody, nobody had Ozzy Osbourne patches on their backpacks, but I, I brought home Ozzy Osbourne's Osmosis. And that then allowed me to answer the question that kids were asking at school, oh, what bands do you listen to? And uh, from that, I started listening to Rage Against the Machine. Rage Against the Machine was very influential for me. And while other kids were pulling up to the high school parking lot, blasting Rage Against the Machines, killing in the name of, I think I was always drawn to the more political songs. Not that that's not a political song, but but uh, but other music. And I, that really opened up my eyes, too, to, to continue to question authority. So we're going to have a listen now to Wake Up by Rage Against the Machine. That was Wake Up, Rage Against the Machine, and that was Peter Hammerstead's choice of 
the record that really had an impact on him growing up and you were age? Oh, I was in my teens. So 13, 14, 15, 16. I still listen to that album. Um, but definitely that could have been a soundtrack to my teenage years. Um, I know at the end, the the screaming wake up, um, I feel like... I feel like that could be a soundtrack for today. Yeah, for sure. I, I think my young Swedish uh, countrywoman, Greta Thunberg, is traveling around the world at the moment on sailboats and by foot and by train, uh, telling people to wake up because the house, our house, this planet, is in a very literal sense on fire. <laughs> she has a bigger audience than Rage Against the Machine now, I think. Yeah, which is amazing. I feel like you know, her, and obviously it's not just her, there are other, you know, young activists, both on climate, but also, you know, gun issues. Mm. I feel like they're the true rock stars of today. For sure. Uh, what I liked about Rage Against the Machine, and now people download music, right, or stream it, but um, I remember buying CDs, and when it was punk music, I would always read the, the liner notes, and uh, bands like Rage Against the Machine would talk about groups that they supported. And I would then go onto the internet and learn more about those causes. And so that was definitely part of my political education. And, you know, because obviously you'd already had this sort of questioning of authority from a young age. Um, and that's very much a record that is doing precisely that. Was there something in in this song or any of the other songs that particularly sparked something in you? I think you you touched very well on it when you said wake up. And um, I, I'm a person who never really felt that talk was enough. Um, this song for me was a call to action. And I think words are cheap and, and action really is everything. And how did you find fitting into school? Was that difficult for you? Oh, it was, it was definitely tough at times. Um, I I think I'm fortunate that throughout my entire life, I've always sort of lived by my own rules. I've always followed my own moral compass. My parents have always been supportive of that. My partner, she's very supportive of that. And um, yeah, but but moving around a lot and being ruthless in that regard, yeah, it was tough at times, but I, I wouldn't change anything. Because I read somewhere that you said some of the difficulties at school just further you know, in some ways informed that desire to help those or defend those who couldn't defend themselves. Yeah, I was the subject of, of bullying in school. And I think that for sure helped instill that strong urge to defend those who cannot defend themselves. And I, I couldn't really defend myself very well then. Um, now I feel incredibly fortunate that I can sail into harm's way to defend marine wildlife. And I have 500 tons of steel to negotiate with. Just on that, do you not feel like what is the experience of fear like for you? Um, I certainly feel fear from time to time. For me, it's rarely been about the confrontations that we have with these poachers. It's often been more equated with going into terrible weather and high seas. And it's not been uncommon to be in 30-foot seas down in a place like the Southern Ocean where rescue is far away. If there's an emergency, there's not really anybody close by to help where you're really on your own in a very real sense. Um, there's some fear equated with that, especially when you have the responsibility for both the safety of the ship and the crew. But in the confrontations, I, I'm just so focused on the work and also very bolstered, I suppose, in confidence by the support that I have of the crew around me. I'm never alone in it. Um, when we block that refueling attempt from happening, for example, down in the Southern Ocean, 
by this factory whaling ship, um, I had 30 crew on board and all 30 of my crew were willing to stand their ground for the whale. So that gave me an incredible amount of confidence. The tens of thousands of supporters we have around the world, that gives me confidence. So I don't really get to feel fear so much in that moment. In those moments, my fear is not doing enough or backing down or that would be my fear. Just, you know, talk us through really what first inspired your life's mission. Well, it really was seeing this image and of this dead whale. And I think whales are very symbolic of the greater problems that were faced in terms of ocean conservation. And seeing this image as a, as a young kid, I, I think like most people, I thought whaling was something that had ended in the 1970s and 80s, that this at least was a victory of the conservation movement. So to know that we were still essentially whacking um, these magnificent creatures really blew me away. And as I looked into it and I discovered not only are we still killing whales, but whaling is banned since 1986. There's been a moratorium on commercial whaling. That made me feel like, okay, government action really wasn't enough. I moved back to Sweden from the United States when I was 17. And at the time, our neighboring country of Iceland, one of our Nordic neighbors, uh, was looking to start whaling again. And so they wanted to become a member of the International Whaling Commission, which is the intergovernmental body that governs whaling worldwide. And Sweden cast the deciding vote, 19 votes to 18, that allowed Iceland back in to start whaling. And ultimately, they voted incorrectly. They literally pressed the wrong button. Uh, that allowed Iceland back in. And when, when the Swedish delegation realized their mistake, they asked for a revote. That wasn't possible according to the policies and procedures of the International Whaling Commission. So here I am, 18 years old, and I'm thinking, okay, now all of a sudden hundreds, if not thousands of whales are condemned to death because this antiquated bureaucracy can't just take three minutes to revote. And I think if we look at going from the countercultural icons from the 60s and 70s to Rage Against the Machine to then me being in that position, um, it was natural for me to apply to join the crew of a ship that was then gearing up to directly intervene in their whaling operations. And that wasn't Sea Shepherd. A Greenpeace was heading up there, and I was actually volunteering on a Greenpeace ship at the time, but they were planning this public relations tour. They were trying to change hearts and minds in Iceland. And while I was a volunteer on board this Greenpeace ship, the talk of the ship was what Captain Paul Watson was going to do. And Sea Shepherd had put out a media release saying that they were heading to Iceland as well. No public relations tour. They were going there to directly intervene and to only measure their success by how many lives that they saved. And, and that approach, uncompromising, really appealed to me. Well, it's the thing that Paul says very well, very simply, is, you know, the opposite of turning up, hanging banners taking photographs is direct intervention um, and how you can be in that situation and, and observe it when there's an option to intervene. For me, it's about being ethically consistent. So if we walk out of the studio after this interview and we see a person kicking a dog on the street, we're not just going to start a Facebook group about it. That's not going to stop the abuse from happening. Uh, we're not only going to call the police and hope that they arrive 10, 15, 20 minutes later when that abuse is said and done. We're going to, I hope, directly intervene and get between that person and that dog, take that dog away from that person, make sure that that person never touches that dog again. Uh, I'm not a I'm not a big guy. Um, my nickname on the ship is The Hammer, but it's not because of my body mass. <laughs> it's because of my hard-to-pronounce surname. Perfect wrestling name. <laughs> um, 
But if I heard a case of domestic violence in the apartment next door to my partner in my apartment, then I wouldn't just call the police again. I would try to put my shoulder to the door to get that door down, to get that door open. Because again, evil prevails only when good people do nothing. So if that's how I would react in those scenarios, then if this 800-ton ship is about to harpoon this endangered, threatened protected whale in a designated whale sanctuary, then I'm not going to stand by and take pictures. I'm going to put my ship where it needs to be to stop that abuse from taking place. So you joined, you submitted your application when you were 18. Was that immediate? Did you join immediately after that? I was very persistent. I didn't hear back. So I called the the Sea Shepherd office every single day for about a month. I'd call them on a Monday and they'd said, don't call us, we'll call you. So I'd call them on Tuesday. They say, don't worry, we'll get back to you on Thursday. But then I'd call them on Wednesday <laughs> to make sure they would get back to me on Thursday. Uh, I then would call them on Thursday before they'd have a chance to call me on the Thursday. Finally, they just gave up. Uh, sea Shepherd was a very small operation at the time. Uh, we now have over 11 ships operating around the world. We only had one ship back then. And ultimately, I was told, okay, you're come on board and yeah, you've got two weeks to get to to Seattle, Washington, and uh, and to head out to sea with us. And my life was then forever changed. Tell me a little bit about your first campaign and how that made your parents never worry again. <laughs> well, we never made it to Iceland. <laughs> we, we, I was told I had to get to Seattle within two weeks because. We, in two weeks, we were heading to Iceland, but we had mechanical problems in dry dock. So ultimately, we were delayed by five and a half months. Uh, by then, the Icelandic whaling season had already finished. And so we headed to the Galapagos Islands in the Pacific Ocean. And my first ever action in defense of marine life actually happened just a short time into the Marine Reserve when we came across this illegal long line that had been set to kill sharks for their shark fins. And this is a long necklace of monofilament with sporting thousands of hooks. And I remember us being on the bow of the ship I was on, the Farley Moat. We're pulling up this line. It's the middle of the night. The crew are very excited because here we are finally after six months taking real action. And I was honestly a bit disappointed. I was thinking, okay, well, here we are pulling up eight miles of this long line, when in one single night, there's enough long lines set around the world to go around the world 500 times. And here's just eight miles of, of line. But I could hold one of these hooks in my hand underneath the moon ahead of us or above us. And just holding that hook in my hand, I realized, okay, well, maybe we can't save the entire world, but we can certainly save the entire world for one of these creatures. And this particular hook, the one that I'm holding in my hand, is not going to kill a shark or a tuna or an albatross, or a sea turtle tonight. And to think that that doesn't make a difference is incredibly anthropocentric, because it's the biggest difference in the life of the animal that, that we saved. Ultimately, we continued to patrol in the Galapagos Islands. At one point, uh, these uh, fishermen in one of these islands actually prevented six of us from leaving one of the islands as they had this big strike and revolt against the government because of a, a fishery quota that had been put in place. My crew and I were prevented from leaving. There was a lot of media coverage at the time. I lost contact with Sea Shepherd because we were stuck on this island. And the international media said that essentially six international Sea Shepherd crew were being held <laughs> hostage on this island. And I remember my poor mother calling the office that I called for a month to get on the ship and asking what had happened to me. And the person working at the office at the time said, 
We don't know. All we know is that he's been kidnapped. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> and we were just stuck on this island. We couldn't leave. So we were actually literally sipping coconuts on the beach. But my mother didn't know Not that. Not too bad. She had three or four sleepless nights over it. And after that, any confrontation, any campaign that I've been a part of hasn't really compared to the trauma <laughs> of that for her <laughs> from the time she thought I was kidnapped. So you really did them a massive favor. I think so. Sure. It was baptism by fire in many ways, I think. And what about your journey to become one of Paul's captains? How easy was that? It was a lot of sea time. It was a lot of schooling. I started uh, as an oiler in the engine room. I then worked my way up as a deckhand. Finally, I got to be a helmsman, second mate, chief mate. And finally, I, I was made captain of one of the ships. And that was, was and continues to be one of the greatest honors of my life. Well, knowing more about you now, I can see how... That was a natural progression. Um, over the years, there must have been some you know, nerve-wracking trips, even if you're able to deal with those nerves a lot of the time. And you've obviously talked about standing your ground to the 8,000-ton factory whaling ship as it was trying to uh, refuel. Um, what about catching thunder? The Thunder was this internationally wanted fishing vessel, a ship that was wanted by Interpol, the International Criminal Police Organization. It had been blacklisted for over 10 years by different regional fisheries management organizations. This was essentially a ghost ship that would just come in and out of various ports of disrepute. And in those 10 years that it had been fishing illegally in the Southern Ocean, it had made an illicit profit of about $60 million. Nobody had seen it for years. And so we set out to try to track down this notorious ship and to shut it down ourselves and to do what no government essentially could do. This was a vessel that we ultimately found after very little time of searching, but in the shadowlands of the Southern Ocean, the most remote area of the sea in the world. This is two weeks sailing from South Africa, two weeks sailing from Australia. And the plan was really simple. The idea was that this was a ship that had avoided justice by changing its name and flag frequently, by repainting its vessel. And if we followed them, then they couldn't change their name. And we could then be this veritable loud hailer exclaiming to the world, this is where this poacher is. Somebody somewhere take over this citizen's arrest for us. And really unbeknownst to us, uh, finding the thunder would start what would become the longest sea chase in history, a, a, a maritime pursuit that lasted 110 days covering three oceans and 11,000 nautical miles. What sustained you during that time? <laughs> um the, my crew, my crew sustained me. The The first thing we we did when we found the Thunder is we, we followed them through the ice. They tried to lose us in the heavy ice flows that surround the Antarctic continent. They then tried to lose us in heavy weather. And they then tried to simply wait us out and test our patience. And at one point, we were burning so little fuel because both of us had our engines shut down that we could essentially be out at sea for over two years. And I had a crew that was willing to stay out with me for over two years. And that was a constant source of support. But also the knowledge that regardless of outcome uh, or final outcome, every day that we were with this illegal fishing boat, they weren't fishing. And so every single day we were with this ship, we were saving Patagonian and Antarctic toothfish. And if that was the only thing to come of it, then that would have been victory enough. You talk about tangible success. And is, does that connect 
to that idea in some way, that feeling of even if there's this not sense of hopelessness, but this sort of confrontation with a reality that there's still so much of this going on. Mm-hmm. The feeling of, you know, this is how many lives I've saved by this action. Is that something that really motivates you? It absolutely motivates me. And I think it's because the problems we're faced are so massive that you need little victories along the way to achieving the greater goal of protecting our oceans and saving the oceans is such it's 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 can be like an insurmountable task at times. So the marine wildlife that we can save here and now, hour by hour, day to day, on some level that has to has to be enough. What is the music you would send into space? <laughs> well I think the root problem in terms of our the relationship that we have with the natural world is that we see ourselves as being separate from the natural world. Uh, we're, we are animals, um, and we share the planet Earth with, I think, over 2.6 million other species. And if the intention is to communicate with extraterrestrial life, I think it would be very arrogant to only represent our own species in that communication. We are in the middle of the sixth mass extinction in ecological history, um, the sixth in a line of five massive species dieouts that have come before. And we are exterminating species quicker than we're discovering new species. And the thing that I've always found a bit, a little bit crazy about space exploration is that we're so busy looking for life out in the universe and we haven't really discovered all the life that there is on the oceans. And we're actually exterminating life before we can find it. And so I would... I wouldn't send a a human-created song. I think that would be very anthropocentric. I would send whale song up to to the skies and the heavens. And in the 1970s, Dr. Roger Payne is one of the people who really popularized whale song. And I think it's important to recognize that we're not the only species that's capable of creating music. Long before we laid the first telegraph cable connecting Europe and North America, humpback whales were communicating from continent to continent by song. Let's take a listen to Left Over Sea Running by Dr. Roger Payne and the Humpback Whales.
That was Left Over Sea Running by Dr. Roger Payne and Humpback Whales. Um, and that was the music that you would send into space. It's the music I'd send into space. It's not the music I would blast in my car driving up the I-405. But Why, uh, why not? <laughs> <laughs> because it's hard to sing along to. <laughs> but we talked a bit about feeling and how music allows you to see the world feelingly. And of course, all of your senses are, are not as effective under the ocean. You can't see as well. But what you can do is hear very well. And um, I think music and, and sound travels, I think it's like four times greater than the speed of sound under the sea. And so I, I, think, it's, I think it's an appropriate song to choose. And why do you think our oceans get so overlooked, even though they're incredibly integral to our survival? The French oceanographer Jacques Cousteau said before he died that the oceans are dying in our time. And he's also said many times that the oceans are out of sight and out of mind. And... Sir Paul McCartney said that if slaughterhouses had glass walls, then nobody would eat animal products. And so if you can imagine industrial fishing operations and whaling operations and stealing operations, imagine that these slaughterhouses are not just you know behind closed doors, but are dozens or hundreds or even thousands of miles to sea accessible only by boat. And so for most people, they, they don't see what's happening at sea, and so they don't really think about it. And they don't realize that the oceans produce more oxygen than than all the forests of the world for us to breathe. So it's mostly about it being in public consciousness, I think. We treat the ocean like it's our toilet and we treat it like it's our pantry and we don't really see its intrinsic value. What do you think the if you were trying to consider really the root cause of all of our environmental problems, what do you think it is? I think there's a number of things. One, we see ourselves as separate from nature. We see natural, the natural world only through its utility and how we can use it. Our economic systems are essentially built on converting living natural things into, into dead things. And we have these economic systems that are also based on unlimited growth. And yet this planet has an, a limited production capacity. It can only produce so many resources. It has a limited carrying capacity. It can only carry so many people with our current lifestyles. And it has a limited absorbent capacity. It can only take on so much pollution. And yet our entire economic systems are built on growing with infinite growth. And that just simply isn't logical and it disobeys the laws of ecology. I really love what you said there. And also I read it somewhere else um, where you described how humans measure intelligence, the ability to use tools to convert living nature into dead things rather than an ability to live in harmony with nature. And it's just, it's so true. What do you think would cause a shift or um, really force a sort of an awakening? I think we're forced to face that awakening now with seeing the effects of of the climate crisis. We have to deal with it. I think as we see weather patterns get worse and worse, as we see more hurricanes, as we see greater periods of drought, as we see more wildfires here in California, we're, we're forced to confront the fact that as a species, we don't run the world, that we have to abide by the laws of nature and that we really are quite small on this satellite that's going through space. And so I think we're, we're going to be forced to confront those realities uh, much sooner rather than later. Going back to the music you would send into space, have there been any particular highlight 
encounters that you've had with marine mammals that have really stuck with you over the years? Whenever we would chase the Japanese whaling fleet down down in the Antarctic, as soon as we would find the factory whaling ship, whaling would cease, that they would stop whaling. And on average, they were taking about 20 to 30 whales a day. So we knew that every day we were with the whaling fleet was a day that we saved 20 or 30 whales. And as we would follow closely on their stern, we would see whales breaching all of the time, humpback whales doing incredible aerial acrobatics and uh, minke whales circling the ship, just being curious about who we were. And as as we pursued the whaling fleet and as we were essentially then shepherding our flock, um, no whaling was happening. And we knew in a very real way that those whales were safe because we were there. And those encounters were very, very special to me because there was an exchange there and uh, because we could see the result of our work. And I think with so many non-governmental organizations, with, with so many groups, the results aren't tangible. They, most organizations measure their success by their support base, the size of it, by the number of glossy reports they put out every year, and we don't put out any glossy reports. And, and for us, the success was always, because we're here, we're saving 30 whales a day. Now it comes to the very sad part of the show where I have to ask you what is the what's the song that you would have at your memorial I love Kate Wolf I love folk music and uh, I think it's the best storytelling medium that there really is and and what I really like about folk music is that it conveys loss in such a such a real way and Kate Wolf was phenomenal in that. She died way too soon and, and very tragically uh, in, in her battle with leukemia. And I love her song, Safe at Anchor. And because I've, I've been doing this work with Sea Shepherd now for, for 17 years, I plan to continue doing it until the day I die, which means that I will be at sea until then, and I won't find safe anchorage until death. <laughs> it seems appropriate to play the song, Safe at Anchor by Kate Wolf. Perfect. Let's take a listen to Safer Anchor, Kate Wolf. Here I stand alone again, reaching out across the room. Quietly the sun's gone down, and sailors seek the harbor. Look at us sailing in, decks awash but still afloat. Now the winds come up to rock us on the water. That was Safer Anchor by Kate Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dub Lab with BT Wolf. And I'm joined today uh, by Captain, Sea Shepherd Captain Peter Hammerstead. And that is the song that you would have play at your memorial. For sure. I, I, again, I think. Folk music conveys this sense of loss. It conveys a, a longing for times gone by. And I think it's appropriate for conservationists who do try to remind people of, of the bountiful world that once existed. And in the same way as folk music is listened to by urbanites to in their longing for kind of a rural life or the rural life they left behind, I think for me, folk music conveys that sense of loss in terms of what we're losing with the natural world. And does that song in particular, or I guess the storytelling aspect of it, um, appeal to you because in some ways you're a storyteller for a lot of these animals? 
I think I've had to take on the role of storyteller because these animals can't speak for themselves. And therefore, the responsibility of Sea Shepherd is to be the voice for the voiceless, uh, to be the advocates for marine wildlife. The, the whales, the, the seals, the sea turtles, the, the fish, these are our clients that we represent to, to the wider world. How do you feel your work has changed over the years and have any aspects of it got easier when Captain Paul Watson started Sea Shepherd, he created this organization to save whales and to save seals. And with time, we've really grown into a save the oceans movement. The problems haven't gone away. The problems have exacerbated. But I, I see hope in that we're a growing movement. And one of the main things that's changed through my advocacy is that so much of my time now is spent in building coalitions and partnerships with mostly developing countries that are looking to take back their seas from poachers. And at the moment, we have seven partnerships with African countries, including Liberia, Gabon, Benin, the Gambia, Sao Tome and Principe, um, Namibia and Tanzania, where these are countries whose economic resources are stretched. So we assist them in patrolling their seas by providing a ship and a crew and fuel. They provide the Navy and the Coast Guard officers who sail on board. And supporting these countries, we've assisted them to arrest 45 illegal fishing vessels in the past three, four years. And every one of those fishing vessels arrested is a slaughterhouse shutdown for me. So I think we've become more and more much more effective. I think we've gotten broader support. And that gives me hope that we can turn this tide of destruction. Tell me a bit about scientist Daniel Pauly and the shifting baseline theory. I think it is appropriate to folk music in that we're talking about a time, the time's gone by and, and what was a greater life once upon a time. And Daniel Pauly is a fishery scientist who, who came up with a theory called shifting baseline, which essentially means that our idea of what is a bountiful sea or our idea of what biodiversity is, is already within a very limited framework. Uh, we're already judging biodiversity from a depleted state. I guess it goes back to you come across these older fishermen and they'll tell you about these huge fish they caught 50 years ago. And before them, 50 years before them, there was another fisherman who caught an even bigger fish. And there's some truth to those accounts. And there are these old accounts from the 1600s about cod populations being so huge off the Grand Banks of Newfoundland that you could literally walk across the backs of cods to go ashore. There's so many of these accounts that it there's enough circumstantial evidence to assume that that was probably the case. There were migrations of whales that were so large that at times ships would have to stop for 24 hours just to let them pass. For us, this seems like this fantastical world. We can't even imagine it. But it wasn't that long ago. And the only reason we can't imagine it is because our experience of what biodiversity is, is already depleted, is already limited. And so we have to kind of allow these areas to rewild, to allow them to, to grow. And that's why I think sustainable use is, is a very limited. It allows us to just look at maintaining the status quo. And the status quo is messed up. It's seriously messed up. We need a hands-off approach that allows rewilding. Have you ever thought about the number of lives you've saved? And do you have any sense of what that number would look like? Well, it's interesting. I, I spent 10 years working with and an under Captain Paul Watson uh, chasing Japanese whaling ships around the Antarctic. And in 10 years of those campaigns, we saved the lives of over 6,000 whales. 
uh, through the illegal fishing campaigns that we're doing now around the coast of Africa, every day that one of these illegal fishing vessels is detained in harbor is thousands or tens of thousands of lives saved. And so, no, it would be in the millions, I, I it, countless. I don't think you can put a figure on it. And that is what allows me to sleep at night. It's what gives me the fuel and the energy to continue. We're having real, real effects. And to go from being this 18-year-old kid helping the crew pull up eight miles of, of line and being able to hold one hook in my hand to now being able to work with my crew and and working with governments to now actually shut down entire operations. I mean, that's that's something that I'm incredibly proud of. Where do you see yourself being buried? <laughs> <laughs> um, a Viking funeral at sea. I see myself in a wooden Viking longboat being pushed out to sea with three archers with flaming arrows <laughs> being pulled out to, to the fjords as Valkyries hover above to take me to Valhalla. No, I, <laughs> and the whales will sing you a song. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I, I don't really, I'm not scared of death. Um, it's not a fear I have of mine. It's not a fear of mine. I don't, I don't really worry about it. I, I, I probably presume that maybe I'll die at sea, um, but when I'm dead, you can kind of do whatever you want. You donate me to the body farm. You can dump me at sea. I don't think it really matters. Okay, and so we're just moving towards the end of the show. And the last Orange Juice for the Year question is, uh, what is the record you'd pass on to the next generation? So I love Carrie Ann Hurst. I don't know how well known she is, um, but it's it's a song that she does called The Thread, and it is all about living life in the moment. It's about not wasting a single day, and it's like my pump-up song, to, to be honest. And for future generations, whether they're my own gener future generations or other future generations, I think the best thing that a parent or a mentor can do is to support the younger generation following their passions. And I think this song kind of reminds them to do just that. Well, we're going to take a listen to that in just a moment, but um, just, you know, wrapping up, what do you feel most proud of and who or what continues to inspire you? I feel most proud that every single day I'm faced with making a decision of doing the right thing or the wrong thing. And had I not decided to stop eating animals at a young age, my life would have taken a very different course. And I see that as a defining moment when I decided that I didn't have to kill other creatures to survive. And whether I'm at sea or whether I'm on land, I'm saving animals every single day by choosing not to eat them. That's what I'm most proud of. I, I'm most proud of making that decision because it really changed everything for me. You had a follow-up question to that. Who inspires you? Captain Paul Watson has been a mentor of mine for my entire time at Sea Shepherd. He continues to be a mentor for mine. I think I'm in this unique position now where I have crews of my own that I sail out to sea with, and I now get to be inspired by them, and I get to learn from them. I'm inspired by our local activists and advocates that we meet in with the countries that we're working in. And I remember speaking to Professor Lee White, who is a conservationist in Gabon, where we're working in Central West Africa, and asking him, we've got these conservation icons like um, Jane Goodall and Sir David Attenborough, who are all getting older. And who who is the younger generation that's going to take their place? Who's the next Jane Goodall? And I remember Professor Lee White telling me that, well, 
the next Jane Goodall will be Gabonese or Liberian or Tanzanian. That, that's, that's, that's the future. And uh, the people that I've met who I know will be the next Jane Goodalls and the next Sir David Ambers, those are the people who inspire me as well. How can people support the work that you're doing, that Sea Shepherd's doing? What's the best way of them finding out more or supporting? We're entirely dependent on donations from the public. They can become a monthly donor. They can volunteer on shore by helping us raise money. Uh, these are incredibly expensive campaigns to run, but we're able to directly transform donations into lives saved. Uh, they're able to volunteer on our ships as well. 80% of our, our crews are volunteers, so that's an option as well. And I think that's something that's really great about Sea Shepherd is that we don't just ask people to donate. We ask people to go a step beyond that and to make a personal commitment. And we need all kinds of people. We need lawyers. We need seafarers. We need educators to join this growing movement to save the ocean. So I, I would ask people to find out what their passion is and then to pursue that relentlessly. And they can go on to either seashepherd.org or seashepherdglobal.org to learn more about what Sea Shepherd is doing around the world and, and to then be a part of a real concrete change. And what is the thread that connects all of your orange juice for the year choices? <laughs> The thread that connects it, I suppose, is that there's a there's a chronological approach to this is music that has followed me throughout my entire life. And it was really fun when you asked me to join this show. I was actually traveling at the time and I was able to dig deep into my musical records and I was able to really recognize what a huge impact music has had on my life. And I felt like I was going back in time a bit. And witnessing all that you have over the last 15 years, do you have hope for humanity? I have, I have hope every single day because although saving the seas can seem like this insurmountable task, we are identifying these critical areas of biodiversity, these places where we're digging in our positions and fighting back against poachers who have plundered those places for way, way too long. And every net that we pull out of the water, every hook that we confiscate, every ship that we arrest brings us closer to our goal of protecting the seas. And each one of those arrests gives me hope. Each life that we save gives me the strength to carry on. And last question, Peter, what is it that you hope to leave behind with the work that you've done and the work that you'll continue to do? Ships and crews to continue the fight. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for sharing your orange juice for the years. Thank you. It was a big pleasure of mine to be here and to be a part of the show. And thank you so much for inviting me. So now we'll listen to The Thread by Carrie Ann Hurst. One, two, three. Thank you. 